The goal is preparation and transformation. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about basic training for the Christian. And in preparation for this sermon, I did a little research on basic training in the military. And I actually went to GoArmy.com and read their description of basic training. Here's what it said. Basic combat training is a training course that transforms civilians into soldiers. Over the course of 10 weeks, recruits will learn basic tactical and survival skills along with how to shoot, repel, and march. They will also learn the basics of army life and military customs, including the seven core army values. In other words, the purpose of basic training is preparation, preparing this recruit for a for service in the army, but also transformation, to transform a civilian into a warrior. Well, this morning I want to, again, talk about God's basic training for Christians because God wants to prepare us for what He has for us. And God wants to transform us so that we will be ready for our calling. And so I want you to see this in Acts chapter 9. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 9, we continue our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful book in the New Testament, Acts chapter 9. We're actually going to begin reading in verse 19, Acts chapter 9, verse 19. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word, truth with no mixture of error, living in active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Acts chapter 9, verse 19, speaking here of Saul, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I've heard... Uh, preachers preach this text before, and they title the sermon, A Basket Case. That's not the title of this sermon, just throwing that out there. Verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So... He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together this morning. 
Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are so grateful for the finished work of Jesus, which makes a way for us to be saved. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking on human flesh, emptying yourself, and being found in the form of a servant, a bondservant, taking on humanity and living in obedience to your Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Because of your condescension, because of your crucifixion, because of your resurrection, we know the Bible says that God has highly exalted you and given you a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we are here today to glorify you, Jesus. We are here to exalt you. We are here to call you Savior. We are here to surrender to you anew and afresh as Lord. So would you have your way in our midst. Father, as we study your word, would you just move in our hearts by your Spirit. Open our eyes that we may see the truths of Scripture and give us the wherewithal, Lord, to obey what we learn, to apply what we learn so that we can live in a way that glorifies your great name. Lord, would you use this this sermon today to prepare us for what you have for us? May this be a part of your basic training for our lives. And Lord, we are mindful today of our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, that are worshiping, that are grieving after such a tragedy. God, I pray that you would just draw near to those that are hurting, those that are grieving. Lord, may you move with power as you remind the people of Charleston and the people in our nation that there is hope in Jesus. Father, would you just provide for them what they need and comfort them. And Lord, I already see how you're using this for your good and for your glory and for the good of your church. So Father, would you just continue to work And Lord, we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and for the last few weeks we've talked about Saul's conversion. Saul was a Jewish religious leader. He had gone to the high priest and said, Can I have a letter so I can leave Jerusalem and go to Damascus and arrest Christians bring them back to Jerusalem, and throw them in jail. In other words, Saul was committed to stop the advancement of Christianity. And he left, Damascus, or left Jerusalem, headed to Damascus on that road, and Jesus, the risen Jesus, encountered him, and Saul was gloriously saved. And I want us to look together at the aftermath, what happened after his conversion, and to think together how God began to put Saul through basic training, so he could be a mighty warrior for the Lord. And so I want to answer this question by learning from Saul's example. How does God train us to serve him? Saul was a brand new believer, and God had a, 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 a phenomenal plan for Saul's life. But how did God begin to train him so he could follow that plan? How does God train us? So we can follow his specific plan for our lives. Well, there are four words I want to give you that answer this question. The first word is the word preparation. Preparation. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9, 
verse 15. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Now after the Lord saved Saul, he appeared to Ananias, and he commanded Ananias to go to Saul, lay hands on him, to encourage him to confirm God's call on Saul's life. And here's what he says to Ananias. The Lord said to him, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, now watch this, before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God had a plan for Saul to take his name before Gentiles, non-Jews, kings, and the, the Jews, the children of Israel. And here's what I want you to understand. Saul had been perfectly prepared by God for what God called him to do. If you, if you look at Saul's life, God had taken him through a preparation process so that Saul was the right man for this specific calling. For example, Saul was born in Tarsus, which means he was a Roman citizen. As a matter of fact, look in Acts chapter 9, verse 29. It says, He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Why did they send him to Tarsus in the area of Cilicia? Because that was his hometown. Over in Acts 22.3, when Saul is sharing his personal testimony with those in Jerusalem, Saul reminds them, I am a Jew born in Tarsus. Now, because he was born in Tarsus, a, 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 a city in the Roman Empire, by his birth, he was a Roman citizen. So wait, what does that mean? What is the big deal that, that Saul was a Roman citizen? Well, this would give him an audience with kings. Because as we walk through the, the latter part of Acts, he is arrested and handed over to different rulers in that area of the world. And they're trying to decide what to do with Saul. There was a large contingent of folks who wanted to kill Saul and just eradicate him. But finally, in the midst of all of this different shuffling around, Saul said, I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he had that right. And because of his appeal to Caesar, he was shipped off to Rome and had an audience with the king. And so his Roman citizenship, where he was born, uniquely qualified him to fulfill this calling of being a witness before kings. He was born in Tarsus. But not only was he born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. Over in uh, Acts 22.3, again, he's sharing his testimony. He says, I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised in this city. He was raised in the city of Jerusalem. He was sent there by his family, or perhaps his family moved there, and he was in that city. This reality would help Saul to relate to all Jews. When he was in Tarsus in a Jewish family, he related to Greek-speaking Jews called Hellenists. But when he was sent to Jerusalem, he grew up around Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so Saul was very comfortable around Jews that spoke Hebrew or Jews that spoke Greek. He could, he could interact with all of them, which was important because he would be called by God to be a witness to Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews. And so this idea that he was born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, uniquely equipped him for this task. Which leads me to this thought. Does it really matter where we were born and raised? Does God have a plan and purpose in our, in our 
birth and, and where we grew up. Well, we'll turn to Acts 17 with me very quickly. Saul here, now called Paul in this narrative, is preaching to a bunch of philosophers in Athens, and he's on the Areopagus. And he says to them in Acts 17, verse 26, speaking of God, He made him from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, watch this, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so so Paul says in Acts 17 that God determines the period of, of our lives, the time in which we live, and the place in which we live. God puts us, listen, God puts us right where he wants us. And God can use our background, where we were born, where we were raised, to prepare us for the task he has for us. That's what he did in in Saul's life. Born in Tarsus, growing up in Jerusalem, uniquely gifted and equipped to do what God called him to do. But there's one other thing I want you to see about Saul. He was trained by Gamaliel in the law. Back in Acts 22.3, he says again, Gamaliel was the one who taught me in the ways of the law, the, the Jewish Old Testament. Now, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He's mentioned in other places in Acts. At some points, he's a voice of reason. And he was a well-respected rabbi. And it seems as if he was Saul's personal tutor to learn Judaism. And so Saul grew up in Jerusalem under this revered rabbi learning all about the Old Testament, which is part of the Bible, right? He was learning God's Word. So what does that matter? Well, this knowledge would give him a comprehensive, this, this teaching would give him a comprehensive knowledge of the Old Testament as a foundation for his preaching and writing. When you look back at Saul's life, you think, boy, that, that training under Gamaliel, It just served him so well in teaching and preaching and writing Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Saul had a wonderful foundation in the the meaning of the Old Testament. And once he followed Christ, he, he showed folks how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. So his... His being tutored by Gamaliel was a key part of how God prepared him to be a missionary to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to stand before kings. Which leads me to this question and brings us all back to our personal application. How has God prepared you? Did you know that just as God had a specific plan and purpose for Saul's life, he has a specific plan and purpose for your life too? And that's not just preacher talk. Listen to what the Bible says over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. Then in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, listen, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means... If you are saved, if you are a follower of Christ, God has some predetermined works, some predetermined things for you to walk in. He has some things He wants you to do. He has a calling for your life, a a plan for your life, a a purpose for your life. You see, your your goal in life should not be just just to exist or just to make it to the weekend. God has something he wants you to do. Some predetermined, pre-prepared things for you to walk in. And guess what? 
if you look back at your life through that lens, I bet you'll begin to see how God has used things in your past to prepare you for what he has for you next. That's what he did in Saul's life. And so here's the question. How has God prepared you? Where were you born and raised? What are your life experiences? What jobs have you worked? What skills have you acquired? What's your background? How has God uniquely shaped you to use you for His glory moving forward? And and listen to this. God can even use your bad stuff. Do you know that? He can even take the, the hurt and pain from the past and the failure from the past and weave it together for your good and for His glory. He can take the pain you've experienced and and use it in your life so you can help others. How about that? God can take the good stuff, the bad stuff, where you were born, where you've worked, how you were raised. He can use it all for His plan for your life. And so the question is, how has God prepared you? This week, listen, this week I want you to ask God that question. I want you to get along with God and get on your knees and say, God, show me what you have for me. And show me how you've prepared me for what you have for me. Show me how you've wired me for what you are calling me to do. So the first part of Saul's basic training is preparation. Saul's past prepared him for what God had moving forward. I think about Moses. You know the story of Moses over in the book of Exodus. Through a series of circumstances, he was raised as a prince in Egypt. Yet he was a Hebrew. And so he was uniquely equipped. After 40 years of wilderness wanderings, commissioned by God to go back to Egypt and navigate Egyptian culture and custom and say to Pharaoh on behalf of his people, the Hebrews, let my people go. Who was more qualified than Moses? Listen, and why was Moses qualified? Because God had prepared him for the task. Preparation. Secondly, the second word that speaks of God's basic training is the word learning. There are some things God wants us to learn. Look back with me in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Now what I want to do, just for a few moments... To help unpack some of this, is I want to walk you through a basic timeline of this period in Saul's life to understand what God did to teach him what he needed to know to serve him. So let me just kind of walk you through these order of events very quickly. First of all, as we've talked about, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He left Jerusalem, headed to Damascus to arrest Christians. He left an enemy of the cross, but he was saved. By the time he arrived to Damascus, he was a follower of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Saved on that. Listen, I hope you never get over being saved. I hope you never yawn when you consider God's amazing grace for sinners who only deserve hell. I was singing that song earlier of Christ intersecting the life of a hell-bound man. And I began to think about my life and I was headed for hell. And Christ stepped into my path. He intersected me. I heard the gospel. He drew me. He saved me. I hope you never get over being saved. He was saved on the road to Damascus. And then he spent some time with the church in Damascus. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, after he was, was encountered by Ananias, Ananias laid his hands on him. The scales fell from his eyes. He could see. He ate and drank. It says, for some days 
he was with the disciples in Damascus. So after he was saved, he got to Damascus and spent some time with the Christians there. And then there's a brief period of witness in the synagogues in that area. Look what it says in verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So he's there in Damascus, brand new believer, and immediately he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? So people are saying, Hey, Saul was an enemy of Jesus. Now he's preaching Jesus as the Son of God. And, And folks were skeptical. But he's preaching Jesus immediately in Damascus. But then, and this isn't in Acts 9, it's over in Galatians 1, there's a, there, there's a three-year period in the Arabian desert where Saul learns from Jesus. Now Luke doesn't record this, that's not Luke's purpose to give us a play-by-play of every aspect of Saul's life, but Saul shares, shares this story in Galatians 1. Turn there with me, I want to show you this, this is fascinating. Galatians chapter 1, hold your place in Acts 9. Galatians 1 verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Saul says, When I was saved... I didn't go to Jerusalem first. I was compelled by God to go into Arabia, the desert. And I was tutored by Jesus himself in the great doctrines of the faith, the realities and implications of the gospel. He spent three years in the Arabian desert to learn from Jesus. This was, you might say, Saul's seminary. And his teacher was Jesus. How about that? Now, his time in Arabia, if you turn back to Acts 9, probably occurred, the the place it fits best in my studies is between verses 21 and 22 of Acts 9. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse uh, 20. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So he's going about proclaiming his testimony that Jesus Christ really is God's Son. And they say, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? And I believe after that verse is when Saul went to Arabia for about three years to learn from Jesus. Because look what it says in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So before Arabia, Saul is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. After Arabia, he is proving and confounding these religious scholars with the reality that Jesus really 
is the Messiah. I believe the reason he's confounding folks is because he spent three years with Jesus in the desert. You say, wait, how do you know that he spent many days in Arabia in this Acts 9 passage? Because look what it says in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And so this plot to kill him took place way after his primary convert, when he was converted in, uh, on the road to Damascus. And so what I want you to see is this. Saul went into the desert for about three years to learn the great doctrines of the faith from Jesus Christ himself. I love how Chuck Swindoll says it. Listen to what he writes. I'm convinced it was there, in the deserts of Arabia, in that barren place of obscurity that Paul developed his theology. He met God intimately and deeply. Silently and alone, he plumbed the unfathomable mysteries of sovereignty, election, depravity, the deity of Christ, the miraculous power of the resurrection, the church, and future things. It became a three-year crash course in sound doctrine from which would flow a lifetime of preaching, teaching, and writing. More than that, it's where Paul tossed aside his polished religious trophies and traded his resume of religious credentials for a vibrant relationship with the risen Christ. Saul was transformed during those three years in the desert. You know what he was doing? He was learning. He was learning. And God wants us to learn if we are going to be who God has called us to be. Now, just a quick aside, just kind of a quick uh, parenthetical thought. And, And again, I can't prove this. I'm just kind of throwing it out there for your consideration. In Galatians 1, Paul mentions Arabia. Then in Galatians 4, he mentions Arabia again. And in that same context, he mentions Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb being in Arabia. Now, I can't prove this. It's not in the Bible. We'll, we'll check on it when we get to heaven. But could it be, could it be that sometime during the three years of wandering in Arabia, Saul stopped by Mount Sinai and stood on that mountain to hear from God just like Moses and just like Elijah heard that still, small voice. I don't know. Kind of cool to think. Perhaps he was in Arabia three years. Perhaps he went by Sinai and spent some time with God on that mountain. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't say. We'll find out later. But we do know that he was in Arabia learning directly from Jesus. Now back to the timeline. After three years in Arabia, he went back to Damascus where he powerfully proclaimed Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22. We just read that. And then he spent 15 days in Jerusalem with Barnabas and Peter. Read that in verses 26 and 27. And then, after his life is threatened in Jerusalem... He sent to his hometown of Tarsus where he would remain for about seven years. Now let's do some math real quick. He's saved. He goes into Arabia for about three years. And then he's, he's in Jerusalem for about 15 days. And then he goes to Tarsus, his hometown, for about seven years. Because we know that seven years pass, we see who, who dies in the narrative and then... then um, Barnabas goes to get Saul and brings him to Antioch to help him with the new Christians in that area. So it's about seven years' time. There were ten years, listen, ten years of time that elapsed. There was ten years of time that elapsed between Saul's conversion and his public ministry where he was recognized as a leader in the church. Ten years. What was he doing for ten 
years. Listen, some people think Saul got saved and just immediately went on his first missionary journey. No. There was 10 years of time when Saul was learning from God. Basic training. And so, here's what we learn from this this story. When we learn God's word, we will be more equipped to live God's will. An important part of your preparation, an important part of your training to be be who God has called you to be is to learn the word of God. There's an inextricable link between your learning truth and living for the glory of Christ. An inextricable link. You've got to learn God's word. Read it every day. Consistently get into the word. Make sure you're under faithful Bible teachers so that you are learning the word of God. It's part of God's basic training for you to learn the Bible. So are you learning? Are you learning God's word? Are you in the Word of God? Are you growing in that area of your life? I've heard people say, well, hey, I'm not into all that doctrine stuff. I just, hey, I just, I just love Jesus. I don't need doctrine. Hey, question, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. That's doctrine. He's fully God. That's doctrine. He's fully man. That's doctrine. He died for my sins. That's doctrine. He rose from the dead. That's doctrine. You can't know who Jesus is and love him until you learn what the Bible says about him. You've got to embrace doctrine to love Jesus. And so Saul was shaped by God for 10 years where he was learning the truths and realities of God's word so he could be a faithful preacher and teacher and missionary for the glory of God. There's a third word here very quickly. We've talked about his preparation and his learning, but third is the word doing. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9 verse 20. Acts chapter 9 verse 20. It says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So he's saved, he gets to Damascus, and immediately... He begins to go to folks and say, hey, Jesus really is alive. He really is the Son of God. He saved me. He immediately begins to share his testimony. And then in verse 28, look what it says. He's in Jerusalem. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So everywhere that that Saul goes, he's obeying, he's doing what God's called him to do. He's sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. Now here's why that's important. There are two types of discipleship that are primarily practiced in the world today. The first is what I'll call knowledge-based discipleship. And knowledge-based discipleship is all about How much can I learn? Teach me more stuff. And we live in a knowledge-based discipleship culture because we've got study Bibles and websites and Christian bookstores and Christian radio and all these churches and all these pastors and we've got small groups and we've got all these different opportunities to learn, 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 learn. And a lot of folks have embraced a a, a knowledge-based form of discipleship that says, 
my maturity is based upon solely what I learn. And if I know more than you, then I'm more mature than you are. And so you have somebody sitting in, in their connect group, and, and the teacher says, hey, does anybody know who Ahab's wife was? And you say, Jezebel, like you're on Jeopardy. I knew that, Jezebel. And you have a new believer that's in the, the group beside you, and they're thinking, I had no idea that Ahab's wife was Jezebel. I could never be used by God. I'm so far behind these, these giants because they know that Jezebel was Ahab's wife. And if all, all a, a church or a group does is practice knowledge-based discipleship, it makes folks feel inferior. They don't know as much. But notice that Saul's discipleship is not just knowledge-based. He gets to Damascus and immediately begins to share his testimony. I believe he shared the gospel in Arabia. I don't have time to go into why I believe that, but he shared with the nomadic groups in Arabia. And, and then he went into, uh, into Jerusalem and shared the gospel some more. He was an obedience-based believer, which is the second type of discipleship. You have knowledge-based discipleship and obedience-based discipleship. And Paul, Saul practiced obedience-based discipleship. In other words, listen, as he was learning, he acted upon what he knew and what God had called him to do. He acted upon what he knew and what God called him to do. And here's the reality. Listen to me. God is looking for people that are not just hearers of the word, not just learners. He's looking for doers of the word too. And if your walk with Christ is limited just to learning, your walk with Christ is not complete. Listen to me. If all you're doing is learning, you're not as mature as you think you are. Because the Bible places a, a premium on doing something with what you learn. Jesus said it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He preached this wonderful sermon. Then at the end he says... The one who hears these words and puts them into practice is the one that builds his house on the rock. Not just the one that heard the sermon, but the one that did something with what they heard. Not just the, the hearer of the word, but the one that heard and did something about it. That is obedience-based discipleship. I read a store, uh, book years ago called Discipleship Revolution written by a man named Ying Kai in conjunction with another leader named Steve Smith. And in this book, they, they tell the story of a gospel movement in China. How the gospel spread like wildfire from, from village to village and house to house. And here's what happened. A faithful Christian would come into a village and share their faith and people would get saved. And, and this person would gather the new believers together and say, write down five people in your sphere of influence that need to hear about Jesus. And they'd write them down. And then the leader would say, okay, this week, go tell them about Jesus, share with them your story, and then we come back next week, I'll ask you how it went. That's what would happen. The folks would leave, and, and a large percentage of the new believers would go and share their faith with, with their coworker or with their grandfather or with their brother. They'd come back and say, here's what happened. And they knew, listen, they knew that they would be asked whether or not they were obedient. 
That's obedience-based discipleship. And the gospel spread like wildfire through China. So here's the deal for all of us in this room. Listen to me. We need to make sure that as we are learning, and we need to learn. I just preached about that, right? Point number two, we need to learn. But as we are learning, we, are, we, we need to make sure we are holding each other accountable to obey. Did you hear what I just said? I, I thought I'd get an amen there. I didn't. As we are learning, we need to make sure we are holding each other accountable to obey. What if you knew that next Sunday... You were going to show up to your connect group and someone was going to ask you, have you shared your faith with anyone this week? That would change the game. But listen to me. Accountability in the American church makes us very uncomfortable. We just want to learn, don't we? Hey, just teach me a lesson. I want to just learn more stuff. I want to know that Jezebel married Ahab and I'm good. Right? Don't ask me hard questions. But if we don't ask each other hard questions, we're never going to grow. And we're never going to hold each other accountable to obey what we're learning. And we're just going to be a big group of learners. Hearers of the word, not doers of the word. And so Saul immediately began to obey. I read a story about a a peculiar fisherman from Minnesota. This fisherman was very well prepared. He knew how to fish. He had everything you need to be a good fisherman. He had poles, nets, bait, and a really nice boat. But this fisherman had a problem. He never caught anything, not one fish. Why did this fisherman fail to catch fish? Well, he never went fishing. He had all of the knowledge and all the equipment But he never got in the boat and never left the dock. Now listen to me. We can have all the knowledge about fishing for men. Understand that's God's call on our life. But if we never leave the comfort of the dock and actually go and fish for men, we'll never see the gospel transform lives. Now, we'll keep learning a bunch of stuff, right? With our study Bibles, our DVD series, and our Christian radio, and and, and all of that. We'll keep learning. Hearing, but not doing what God's called us to do. Prepared to fish. Equipped to fish. Knowing we need to fish, but never catching any fish. And so... Doing was an important part of basic training for Saul. But there's one final thing I want you to see very quickly. We've talked about preparation. We've talked about learning. We've talked about doing. But, but fourth and last, I want to talk to you for a moment about encouragement. Saul needed encouragement. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he came come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so Saul is is treated with skepticism by the other believers. And rightly so, he had thrown people in jail, right? I've wondered often, during his time in Jerusalem, I wonder if maybe some friends or family members of Stephen were in that church. Remember Stephen, stoned to death for preaching Christ? And Saul approved, he was holding the coats of the men who were throwing the stones. I wonder if he ever had to look a good friend of Stephen's in the eye. And and they're thinking, you're the guy that wanted my friend or my family member stoned. 
I wonder if he ever sat by someone in church that he actually arrested. (laughs) That'd be awkward, right? And so they're skeptical. And, and, And he's being ostracized here. He's learning... It's going to take some time for him to to win the hearts of the people in Jerusalem. He's experiencing hardship here. And then look in verse 29. It says, He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. Not only is he having a hard time being accepted by the Christians, he's being threatened by the non-Christians. He is being challenged with what it means to obey Christ. As Saul encountered the difficulty of obeying Christ, he desperately needed the support of fellow believers. And yet these Christians are saying, I don't know if we trust you, Saul. You know, I thought about it this week. For these Christians to embrace Saul, they had to forgive him, didn't they? And I don't know if you saw it this week or not, but there was an amazing story of the power of forgiveness. As we saw the events unfold in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a, a bond hearing for the young man that, that shot these, these believers in the church in Charleston. It was a heinous, evil, evil act. I believe demon influence, if, not, if, not, if he wasn't even demon-possessed. Evil. And they had a bond hearing where family members of those that lost their lives were speaking to the judge and to this man who had shot their loved one and killed them. And these folks were saying to this killer, we forgive you. You're talking about the light of Jesus shining? We forgive Even One person even said, you need Jesus. And told him of his need to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Amazing story of the power of forgiveness. Something similar had to happen here in Jerusalem. This guy was a terrorist for Christians or against Christians. And for them to embrace him, they had to forgive, didn't they? That's where Barnabas steps in. Saul's being ostracized. He, he understands that, the, that, the, that the, the Christian life is difficult. He's being threatened. And in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And so Barnabas put his arm around Saul and said, I can vouch for him. After this, the church begins to embrace Saul. And guess what? He needed the encouragement from the body of Christ. Because he was experiencing the hardships of living for Jesus, right? Preaching and folks wanted to kill him. What if he had to do that all alone with no one to encourage him? As a matter of fact, when his life was threatened, the Christians are the ones that rallied and, and sent him to his hometown of Tarsus to get him out of town until the threat died down. Which, by the way, the threats against Saul never died down. Now, why is this important that we understand our need for encouragement? It's important because every Christian goes through three stages. The first stage of the Christian life is, this is easy. Remember when you were first saved? Man, it was easy to get up, go to church. Easy to read your Bible. Easy to share your faith. You were on fire. Man, this is easy. 
Man, I just love Jesus. I love living for Jesus. And it was easy. Have you ever wondered why you lost that fire from when you were first saved? It's because you entered into the second phase. The second phase is when you say, this is difficult. Sometimes people oppose me because I preach Jesus and share Christ. And I have relational problems and difficulties. And life is hard. You know, following Jesus is it's not it's difficult. That, that's phase two. Phase three of the Christian life is this. This is impossible. This is impossible. Obeying God's word, the implications for my day-to-day living, I can't do this in my own strength. Listen, that's precisely where God wants you to be. He wants you to understand you cannot live the Christian life apart from his strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants you to understand your dependence upon him. But listen to me. As you go through those stages, man, this is easy. Woo, I love Jesus, right? To this is difficult. Well, man, it's a little bit tougher. A little bit tougher to get up and go to church. A little tougher to read my Bible every day. A little bit tougher to to express love of Christ to those that that are offending me and, and treating me wrong. A little bit tougher. And then, this is impossible. How does anyone live for Jesus in this world? See, I believe at the end of Acts 9, Saul is experiencing the, the impossibility of the Christian life. And he needed someone to encourage him. And Barnabas is the one that puts his arm around him, brings him into the fold, and the other believers are there to lift him up as he experiences these threats on his life. So what does that mean for us? It means that we all need a faith community to encourage us. Hebrews 10 is clear. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need to get together because you and I need the encouragement to keep on living for Jesus in the power of the Spirit. I need you. You need me. We need each other, right? We need each other. Church is not about just coming and sitting on a, on a seat and hearing a sermon and singing some songs. It's about our need to get together. Because the Christian life is impossible. Right? There was an amazing story from the sports world that happened yesterday. On on Friday, an Australian golfer by the name of Jason Day was competing in the U.S. Open, which is in the Pacific Northwest this year. And he was diagnosed with something called benign positional vertigo. And there's, there's a video of this happening. He's walking along on the last hole, and he just falls over. He gets dizzy and just falls over. They have to help him up, and he has to kind of regroup, and, and somehow he finishes that round of golf. Well, the, the, overnight, they gave him different medications and tried to treat him, but he's still struggling. He was still struggling on Saturday with uh, positional benign vertigo. But he went to, to play his next round. And his caddy, who'd been with him for years, named Colin Swatton, said this to him. I love this. You've got the heart of a lion. You get to show the world today that you're going to be the greatest you can be. Look, let's do it. Don't you like that motivational speech? Hey, I know you're hurting with this this vertigo. I know it's hard, but you got the heart of a lion. Let's go show the world. I love that. But then you know what happened next? He had Jason Day put his hand on his shoulder. And all throughout the round, Jason Day had to follow his caddy and put his hand on his shoulder for balance so he could make it through the round. By the way, he's tied for the lead today with three other golfers. 
So if you're a sports fan, if you're done, go home and watch it. Don't look on Google right now. Just take my word for it. But listen, that's encouragement, is it not? You can do it. Let's show the world. Now, put your hand on my shoulder. And I'll keep you steady as we finish this round. That's encouragement. Where we say to each other, in the power of God's Spirit, by His grace, we can do great things for God. Now put your hand on my shoulder. I'm going to walk with you through it all. In those times when you're shaky, I want you to steady yourself on me and my life. And we'll walk through this thing together and we will live for the glory of God and we will make a difference. That's what we need in the church. We need to encourage each other. And so Saul was going through basic training in Acts 9. Preparation, learning, obeying, and being encouraged through it all. And here's the point, I'll be through. We should enthusiastically and expectantly participate in God's training program for our lives. Just like Saul was going through basic training, God wants us to go through his basic training. And we should embrace that and say, yes, God, make me into who you want me to be. And we should be expectant. I can't wait to see your plan unfold for my life. Because I want, God, God, I want to live for your glory. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to just make it to the weekend. I want to live for your glory. And so God, train me, prepare me, teach me, use me. We should enthusiastically and expectantly embrace basic training for the Christian life. 